Welcome to today's podcast, How to Counter the Threat of Extremist Ideologies. Despite the billions of dollars spent since 9-11 trying to defeat terrorist organizations, the so-called Islamic State, Al-Qaeda, and other groups remain a terrifying political threat. In some ways, the threat has grown worse. The danger today can come from anywhere, from the other side of the world to across the street. We seem doomed to a worsening struggle with a constantly evolving army that remains several steps ahead of us. Unfortunately, current policies seem almost guaranteed not to reduce extremist violence, but instead to make it easier for terrorists to spread their hateful ideas, recruit new members, and carry out attacks. In this podcast, Rain founder David Lawrence interviews Farah Pandith, author, foreign policy strategist, and former diplomat. A world-leading expert and pioneer in countering violent extremism, she is a frequent media commentator and public speaker. She served as a political appointee under Presidents George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama. And most recently, she was the first ever special representative to Muslim communities, serving both Secretaries Hillary Clinton and John Kerry. She has served on the National Security Council at the U.S. Department of State and the U.S. Agency for International Development in various senior roles. She has also served on the Department of Homeland Security's Advisory Council, chairing its task force on countering violent extremism. She's a senior fellow with the Future of Diplomacy Project at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at the Harvard Kennedy School, as well as an adjunct senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Her book is How We Win, How Cutting-Edge Entrepreneurs, Political Visionaries, Enlightened Business Leaders, and Social Media Mavens Can Defeat the Extremist Threat. And with that, I'll turn it over to our moderator, David Lawrence. David? First of all, it's a great honor and privilege to, again, be uh, speaking with you and Obviously, congratulations uh, on your book. Let me start with a basic question, which is, uh, why did you write it, and what do you hope to uh, accomplish in uh, in sort of sharing your experiences, your thoughts, your ideas? It's a pleasure to be part of this podcast, and I'm, I'm eager to talk about this book because the most essential uh, thing we look at today is the rise of hate globally, uh, and the us versus them ideologies are not decreasing. They're actually increasing and manifesting in ways that we would not have imagined. Twenty years almost since 9-11, and we still are watching young people get recruited to organizations like um, with, the, with the genesis of, of uh, you know, an al-Qaeda or an ISIS. And so for me, writing this book was about giving uh, government, corporates, and regular citizens themselves a playbook on how we stop recruitment. And I know that solutions are available and affordable right now, and I want to make them accessible to everyone. So I, lo- I love the title, by the way. And um, if I could also say I felt there was a subtitle uh, because there may not be, you know, an actual win here. Uh, but uh, I actually thought the book could have easily have been entitled How We Can Effectively Compete uh, because that is really the, you know, as I view it, the challenge, and I thought, you know, it was highlighted uh, well uh, in the book that particularly in the age of social media, and uh, what I'll refer to is almost the balkanization of where information comes from and how cheaply um, it can scale and how very often without attribution and beyond the reach of law enforcement messages can go out. It is a game of whack-a-mole. And uh, what you seem to outline uh, in your book 
are the ways that actually we can compete against these types of messages. Is that a maybe a it's a more modest title, but might that be a fair summary as well? Well, David, you know, what's important here is that, you know, we've looked at the challenge of extremists defeating the extremist ideology as something that is just really hard. I mean, you hear government people talking about that all the time. You hear CEOs uh, of tech companies and other companies thinking that this is something that, you know, government needs to regulate and figure out. This isn't about what's happening online only. People don't get radicalized only in the online space. Things are happening to them emotionally outside of what's happening online. And, and so in order for us to defeat the ability of extremists to be able to recruit young people to their armies, we've got to get clear about a couple of things. One, this is not some rare cancer that we're trying to find a solution for. This is an issue that we know how to solve. We know how to change behavior. We've done that with smoking. We've done that with recycling. We can do it with the ability for people to find hate appealing. Um, Secondly, um, the solutions require not tens of millions of dollars for hundreds of years or uh, you know which is you know what people seem to believe that this is going to take generation upon generation this requires a steady 24/7 commitment and focus uh, for a hard power, um, the kind of uh, analysis that the hard power folks, those people in the military, that, that fierce attention that they, that they put, that same kind of attention needs to be put on fighting the ideology. And we, so we need a more balanced way of looking at what the solution is. And thirdly, and very importantly, what do we mean by winning? Winning is not defeating hate around the world permanently forever. We are not Pollyanna over here. What we are saying is in order to find a difference, in order to change the game globally and not have to deal with this kind of extremism, we need to reduce the amount of appeal of this ideology so that the bad guys are not able to recruit their armies in the numbers that they have. We'll always see hate in this world. We will always see terrorist organizations that are trying to do bad things. But the scale can change, and that's what the defeating is here. So what I propose is a very steady focused 24-7 application of everything we know about how kids are getting radicalized and applying it to building a defense so that we are not doing, as you said, a -a whack-a-mole, something happens in Syria, something happens in Pakistan, something happens in Boston, Massachusetts uh, on on Marathon Day. I mean, these are one-off things that we see and we think, uh, look at all the trouble that we're having, rather than saying, we have a billion Muslims under the age of 30, a billion. That's the demographic from which the bad guys are recruiting. Why isn't it that we are applying ourselves with all the lessons that we've learned in 20 years since 9-11 to destroying the appeal of that ideology? So as you have uh, given a great deal of thought and you know, motivation for the book, and one thing I'll remind the listeners is as far as not um, someone who comes away to the game, and you know, the book I think reflects a great deal of not only experience but evolutionary thinking and rethinking about this. Um, what, just to simplify the message, we we know the types of 
messages and we'll call it social, psychological, and psychological mm-hmm. insight, insights that motivate behavior that we use it all the time in the commercial world in terms of selling and pushing decision-making, et cetera. And the question here is whether we can apply the lessons that we know from these other spheres in a concerted and constant and steady effort to message other themes to young people. And I know you, you know, you are very much focused on one billion Muslims and the radicalization and what led up to 9-11 and that type of thing. But I just find that, um, there, there, as you said, there is a lot of hate in the world. It's not a matter of defeating it. But that I, the messages within your book and the ideas within your book clearly have broad applicability uh, to a wide range of extremist thinking and to a wide range of extremist activity. You know, one of the key parts of uh, of this book is to talk about the system uh, clearly that is underlying extremism, and it is true that um, the work that I've been doing since 9-11 has been focused on one type of bad actor. Um, unfortunately, in 2019, we are now we now have a crisis on our hands with a growth of um, other kinds of extremists that had been. Um, ad hoc and very small movements within our country and around the world that have have now joined together and are building the kind of capacity that we were seeing. I mean, years ago, when you're looking at terrorist organizations that they were doing, like small, you know, disparate things in various parts of the world that tied together, now we're seeing that with the neo-Nazis and the sovereign citizens and others. I mean, they're all different kinds of far-right extremisms, but you see that there. But let me go to the baseline here. Um, The us-versus-them ideology, which is what we are trying to defeat and trying to make sure that people are not finding appealing, gets to the heart of something emotional. And that is uh, what it means, what identity means, what they feel about themselves. And in the the work that uh, we know uh, in the mental health space, in those that have uh, studied young people and uh, how they're persuaded, we know that the human brain does not get developed until the age of 24. And so what we are looking at is what we can be doing to work on the issue of identity, um, how people think and belong, how they feel that they belong, in the, and, and, and work on, on how to um, absorb that into our communities so that we're not setting up an us versus them. And that requires all of us to play a role here. This is why this book begins uh, at the identity crisis that's happening with young people Um, in a post-9-11 world. I'm specifically, my book speaks about, you know, the kind of um, identity crisis young Muslims are having, and but there are lessons to be learned uh, for all of us in terms of how how you stop that and why it's happening. But it also talks about what communities have to do. The answer here, the solution, the playbook is not some foreign thing that's happening in another part of the world that we we look at and we think, well, that's so different. We have to be looking at neighborhood to neighborhood here in our country and around the world to say, it's not region, it's demographic. What specifically is happening to millennials and Generation Z as they navigate their identity growing up and what can we do 
as communities, um, in schools and outside of schools, in homes, in, in, in all of the touch points that these young people absorb in the daily environment, what can we be doing to make sure that we are being more inclusive uh, and making sure that they do not feel that they are um, that they are the other, and that will if we build that kind of resilience in communities, the bad guys are, are will not be able to recruit uh, young people to to their to their armies. And uh, by the way, I'll mention to our listeners that the reviews of Far's book uh, truly over the top. Uh, from a wide range of, uh, you know, just incredible uh, thought leadership. Uh, but the one thing, and I'm glad you touched upon this, because I, I thought there was a, um, a universal message that was coming through with your book. Uh, the reviews, um, you know, were very much focused on, and I uh, understand why, but the global Muslim uh, community. And yet I felt the lessons transcended that. Uh, they're human of, lessons, right? Right? Yes, they're human. Exactly. They're human exactly. lessons, and 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 I think that humanity is something. And this is, you know, it, we we walk this very strange line because I think as an individual person, you understand how important it is to build um, to build warm and resilient communities based on mutual respect, based on compassion. These are values that most humans <laughs> understand that are important. And yet um, we are watching a change happen in our communities where the rise of us versus them, as I said, across different extremisms, have, uh, have changed the very nature of what it feels like to live in a community um, as anything else, whether it's a, a gender stereotype, whether it's a sexual stereotype, whether it's a religious or racial or we, we can go on and on. There's something that has changed in our existence um, on planet Earth today, and, and we could have a conversation about how those changes have been turbocharged because of social media. We don't, we, you know, your listeners understand the algorithms um, and how they work online and what, what it all means. Everybody reads the paper. We understand all these things. But the harder question is, so what do you do about it? And how do you change your behavior? How does a city, how does a town change their behavior so that we are not um, setting up that us versus them? And this could sound like you're trying to boil the ocean. We're trying to build something so perfect and like this nirvana state that we'll never get there. But what I say in this book is there is power in an individual action, and I know that because on the other side, on the evil side, people get recruited not en masse. People get recruited one-to-one. And in the same way, you can understand that from a one-to-one dimension, a person can um, can extend a hand, can be different, and can treat uh, somebody of the other differently to help change the way they think about themselves. And we've seen that happen. And and I propose in this book lots of solutions on very different kinds of levels. What government must do and must do now. But I also talk about corporate purpose and what companies can be doing. They've looked at this issue of the rise of hate and they've been lazy on it. You know, this is something somebody else is going to do. You know, they're going to put their time and attention towards social good on other things that are in fact good. But nobody's taken up the issue of hate. Nobody's taken up the issue of something. We have a role as a corporation to play in this conversation about what it means 
to have mutual respect in our communities in which we do work. Um, and so as I, as I look at this issue, I also then look at, you know, what's happening with civil society and what can we be doing to help um, motivate civil society to be able to do small actions to make change. So this book is filled with, uh, it, you know, direct solutions right now for an average person for a corporation and for government. And my answer here is if if it's if if we are looking at this challenge and we say it's only government that has to deal with it because you know what this has something to do with violence or extremism and so this is like a policing kind of thing we're doomed because that's not the answer here. Government doesn't do emotion very well. It can set up uh systems It can motivate, it can be the convener and the facilitator and the intellectual partner with the ideas that are on the ground, and it can organize itself better within Washington on on how we deal with these kinds of things. Soft power isn't something that we have given agency to. We we talk a great game. Every every president since 9-11 has talked about the importance of fighting uh, the ideology of us versus them, the war of ideas. Uh, everybody in Washington talks about building resilience, but the money that both Congress and administrations have deployed to do this stuff, barely anything. Corporations have, have also looked at this issue and said it's too scary. I'm not going to talk about hate. This is something our shareholders won't get behind. It could, it could actually make a difference to our brand if we get involved in this. My answer to that is wake up and smell the roses. Look at how millennials and Generation Z, what, what the data is telling us right now about social purpose, corporate purpose, what young people, your future customers and current customers think about a company. They will pay a dollar more or even a couple of dollars more for a, um, for a product that is sourced in an ethical way. And if you're a company that understands that and you understand the bottom line, you aren't just doing this for like some special, you know, PR thing. You're doing it because you can actually make a difference in your bottom line. And and so, David, as I understand this issue, as somebody who came into this work right after 9/11, this book was written um, not to uh, not to just sort of say, here's what I saw in a hundred countries and. Here's something I wish we could do. It is a practical, reasonable, um, and affordable uh, effort right now to do something because here's the kicker. If we don't deploy every element of community on this issue, government, corporates, and civil society, the, the, the dramatic uh, impact of the rise of hate will play out in ways that we were not yet ready to think about. And I'm not being an alarmist. I'm simply looking at the numbers and I'm looking at the data that we see around the world in terms of the rise of us and them and the impact of that in, in, in resilience in communities. And so, you know, one of the themes, and I'll, let me just sort of simplify, we, all, we actually all do own the issue. And um, what I will say, though, in, you know, speaking to various people, and, we, you know, we're very much on the ground with leading corporations. You know, there still is that sentiment that this is the government's issue. This is what we pay taxpayer dollars for. This is why the government exists. It's a national security issue. And the notion that we're all sort of ambassadors, if I can use that term, that the workplace environment that you cultivate, where you recruit from, uh, the way people are treated, 
um, the way Americans even speak speak on uh, customer service phones to far off places uh, when they have an issue. That there is an impact that individually uh, we all can have for the better or for the worse, mm-hmm. and that this is not a problem that could be owned by the government, even if you know theoretically they were focused in the right way. And so the overarching message that um, I think people will take away from your book is that we actually all have to own this, and we all have to own how we treat people. And the, you know, I love some of the competitions that have been run between countries and groups about how to, you know, whether they're developing messages or apps or whatever, but that there's actually an entrepreneurial model that is required here um, for dealing with this issue and being constantly vigilant about that issue. So I wanted to, you know, just sort of emphasize that to our listeners. Can we sort of, um, and let me role play, uh, you're now with the CEO of a, um, I won't even say Fortune 500 company, but let's call it a mid-cap company. And he or she is saying to you, okay, I actually, look, I'm operating in, you know, 10 different countries. I have a workforce of, you know, 15,000 people. Tell me specifically how I can be helpful here. Well, the first and most important thing is what's the what is your bottom line for the company? What do you stand for? And that's a that's a question that a lot of companies are 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 think that they have the answer. They have their mission statement, and and I, I get what you do. But what do you actually stand for? And I and I know that that's a weird question, but it's a question that is absolutely um, important to your bottom line today because of exactly what I talked about earlier, what your customers are demanding. It is no longer okay just to make a widget or to sell the whatever it is you're selling. You gotta have a have a have a, a bottom line on what you think about um, the world and your position you're standing. You don't have to be a Unilever and be a Paul Polson to be doing this or a John Mackey to be doing this. You you need to be thinking about what what in fact do I say I stand for? And if you stand for equity, if you stand for, you know, you know, basic I would argue, basic bottom line uh you know values that build societies and make them stronger, you understand that that will be better for your bottom line because of the the, the message that you're sending to your employees, um, what your what the message is that you're sending around the world and your to your customers and what you're trying to do and why you do it, um, and it will make you money. So we know all of that. So what do you do? What do you do with this? If you're a company that believes in kindness or uh, equity or you know um, building inclusion or whatever it is that you that you 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 value. Um, you can be thinking first on an internal side, what are you doing within your company to make sure that there isn't us versus them? It, this is far beyond the diversity conversations that you're having within your company. It's to also say, are there actions that we can be taking uh, as a company that's doing more than just having um, having a, a day once a year that donates our uh, uh, donates an hour towards fighting hate, which is a awesome first step. 
Um, the second step might be, okay, we've done that. Are there projects that are happening within our actual community where, uh, where our supply chains exist, uh, local NGOs that are our communities that are in need of some of our expertise or some of our dollars to help them do the kinds of things that we know will make a difference in their communities. Um, and, and every company has an answer to that. Every company um, can, in fact, look around their communities and say, what NGOs, what libraries, what school programs are fighting hate or fighting the us versus them? Is there something we can do here to be helpful? That's critical, David. You know, I, I don't I, – I know that sounds awfully cute, and, and for many listeners, you might think, oh, well, that, how is that going to make a difference? Well, as somebody who, as special representative to Muslim communities, I traveled to almost 100 countries on behalf of the United States, and I saw – with my own eyes, you know, exactly the difference when a, a small community got that extra money to be able to have a program that made a difference to build, um, to build compassion or to build, um, to build alternative narratives to the narratives of any kind of extremist. You change lives one by one and, and people are affected when they see, you know, see a city, see a town, see a neighborhood, change. Let's take it right back to America. Let me give you something really small um, but really important. You know, there are mayors all over this country that have been working on programs to make their cities feel different. Now, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be New York, which is gigantic, but look at a, look at a city like Louisville, Kentucky, and look at what Mayor Greg Fisher uh, is doing there. He's called it a city of kindness, and he is in- incorporating curriculums, uh, public art, uh, engagement with nonprofit organizations within his, uh, within his city, and companies that are all working together to say, we're a city of compassion. What are the things that we can be doing to make sure that that's the signal we're sending every single day? That's something any company can do. So just to maybe underscore, um, sometimes people get overwhelmed by the magnitude of the issue and they say, what can I possibly do? Mm-hmm. But I felt the overarching, one of the overarching themes uh, of the book was, you know, sometimes progress is made in small ways, small measures, small steps. And I, I sort of took it as a, a bit of a message of, of uh, you know, to encourage entrepreneurialism and a little bit of uh, of thinking that, you know, you don't have to necessarily, uh, as you say, boil the ocean. It's enough to, you know, put your feet in the, uh, you know, just in, in the beginning of the shoreline. Uh, so even small things can make a big difference. Because they all the add up together, level. right? right. Yeah, yeah, because they all add up together, David. Uh, and, and this is what people people think, well, there's nothing I can do because I can't flip, flip the switch and there's going to be hate in the world. But there are many, 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 many small things that lead up. I, I want to remind our listeners <laughs> that in the 1980s, when HIV-AIDS uh, became something and we learned about it and people were filled with fear and we couldn't talk about it because it had to do with issues that society wasn't ready to talk about yet um, and the preventative structure for how to, how, to, how to get this, the use of condoms, for example, we couldn't even talk about it in regular ways. If we had waited for government to find the answer, to find the cure, we would still in 2019 be dealing with that issue uh, the way we, we saw it in, 1980, in the 1980s. But that's not what happened. What happened was it took many, many, many 
small interactions and, you know, efforts by communities, by church groups, by schools, by philanthropists who put money in it, by, I mean, I could go through companies who decided to take it. I mean, like many, many aspects of, uh, uh, of interaction on this issue because they were scared, it's true, but they wanted to find a way to deal with this. And here we are in 2019 where we can. So I look at this, it's not a perfect correlation here, but it's similar. If we wait, if we wait for government to somehow figure this out, 20, 20 more years will go by and we will still be having this conversation. We could look at the HIV AIDS example or uh, anything like it and say, what allowed all of the progress to be made? What are the many small actions that fed into a larger wave that actually made a difference? And I think one could argue that, you know, teaching safe sex in a school, uh, in an after-school program, for example, or the words that a president used or uh, of, a, of a company in terms of what they're going to do with their employees who might, I mean, like any kind of action that may seem like a one-off combined together actually makes a much bigger difference. And that's what we have to do here with Fighting Hate. So there's almost a call uh, for people to liberate themselves, <laughs> the notion that uh, solutions come from the top down. So, well, yes, and, and stop being lazy yeah. on hate. I think people okay. are really lazy on hate. I think I think when you look at and you look at this and you take a step back, David, and you say, "Where? What was our thinking on on September twelfth, two thousand and one, the day after that horrific attack? Everybody was ready to do whatever it took to make sure." That we defeated this horrible, um, this horrible thing, um, this, this terrorist organization and the ideology that inspired it. Everybody stood up. Corporations stood up. People stood up. What can I do? They said. Well, in time, it was sort of like, oh my God, you know, okay, the fear is away. The, the, you know, the farther we, 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 we step away from this, it was sort of somebody else's problem. There is a immediate thing that government must do. It must keep its citizens safe. But the radicalization process, the recruitment process, we're, we, you know, I think parents, if you're a, if you're a parent and you are, you're going to wait for government, to teach your your 12-year-old girl that there are predators online? I don't think so. You're taking agency you're you're take as a parent, you are doing everything you can to teach your child about the the predators that are available uh and are ready outside to 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 be uh, harm from harmful um and so you teach them proper protocols uh when they're walking to school, when they're waking waiting for a ride, where they go on the internet. You're not waiting for government to do that. So my answer here is we've got to get real about the rise and the change of hate and the stats that we have about the rise of hate globally and the different kinds of extremist groups that are utilizing this environment to recruit. And the bottom line is what will that mean for the daily life of every human? And that is the bottom line. If you care about nothing else, how is it going to affect you? And we're already seeing changes. This is not just about, you know, who might be in the Oval or, or whatever. It, it is about a, a global change in humanity. And that's, that, and the change for us in order to build that resilience requires every single person to say, I can't change everything overnight, but I can change in my, what I'm able to control, I can do something, which is why I, I speak very candidly 
about the lessons that we've learned from other kinds of threats that we've seen. So I want to um, underscore, and I know I, I didn't see it in any of the reviews of the book, and it, you know, it, to me it was implicit in your writings, but there's a universal message here far that you're actually articulating. And I love the fact that you bring up, you know, everything from safe sex to, you know, safe use of the Internet, et cetera. But the fact of the matter is that the issue you're, um, you have raised here is the need for people to stop looking for leadership uh, as a grass top issue. Mm-hmm. It actually has to be grassroots. And what I will argue is that whether it is in um, the issues of, say, sex, whether it's the social issues of equality of marriage, uh, the AIDS crisis, uh, whether it's the issue of even cybersecurity, the mishandling of the drug epidemic, the opioid crisis, et cetera, is I do believe uh, that, you know, people have... I'll say justifiably, been waiting for a response from the government, have been relying upon an effective response from the government, have elected leaders and voted and heard speeches and things like that, and just assumed, I'll use the word complacency, just assumed that these things were being taken care of. And the message you are delivering in this particular sphere is actually a universal message that some of the most important issues, some of the important threats, the risks, risks not only to our safety and security, but to our basic humanity, have to be addressed by the people. That They cannot wait for the so-called solutions to come out of, whether it's the Washington, the EU, or wherever. And that, to me, was uh, sort of the universal message that, you know, should be taken away from, your research, your book, and, and your ideas. Thank you, David. And, and you, you hit it home. That's exactly, that is exactly the bottom line here. And so just in the minute or two we have uh, remaining for this podcast, uh, maybe you could share with us just sort of a bit of the response that you're getting. And I'll, I'll be the first to tell you that, you know, Washington has around some of our most fundamental issues it's a place where you can receive a great reception. You can have great meetings. Um, people love ideas. And then, it, you know, there's a, a failure of follow-through. So what I would love to get for a sense of for the listeners is, you know, sort of how the, your ideas have been received in the corridor, so-called corridors of power, and then also how the ideas have been received uh, by the people and some of the things that are going on and what you hope to accomplish. I know you're, you're continuing your meetings and your travel, but what you hope to accomplish over the, you know, the next several months. Well, thank you. I, I will, I feel very uh, honored and humbled because, um, you know, as somebody who served as a political appointee for both President Bush and President Obama, I come to the table in this book with a, uh, a, a very nonpartisan assessment of what we've been doing for the last 20 years. And um, having been somebody who, I mean, I, 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 am, I speak 
truth. Uh, I am not spinning. I have no super secret agenda here. My agenda is a human agenda, and that is we can do better. And um, so the response from from government has been overwhelmingly positive. Uh, The response has has been, you know, they can't believe how direct and how clear I am about the good, bad, and ugly in in both the Bush and Obama administrations in terms of where we failed and where we succeeded. Um, They think that that speaks volumes for, you know, for this in a a time when everybody is either red or blue or, you know, there are strident opinions. I'm I'm very sort of neutral on this. It's like, let's let's get on with this. So it's not about politics. It's about the policy we need to go forward on together. And then secondly, um, I've, been, I've been really um, grateful because the response has also been, Farah, the things that you are suggesting <laughs> are not so complicated. You know, I'm not um, designing a $25 trillion machine that needs to live in this particular place and build a whole – I'm not, I'm not talking about that at all. I'm extremely practical because I know what the limitations are within our interagency and what we what we need to be doing. And, and so the government response has been it's immensely doable. Um, the things that that you're looking at. And the third has been um, from government people have been uh, you know look we are uh, we are facing uh, a, a, a complicated situation because unlike. President Bush and President Obama, uh, President Trump is putting out the signal um, that, you know, ISIS is defeated, has said, not the signal, he has said, ISIS is defeated, and he's wrong. You know, the ideology hasn't been defeated, and so that makes it even harder. So in this book, of course, I'm not, I talk about the impact of selling to the American public that you're going to be safe, everything's fine, ISIS is gone, you know, that threat is over. And and it's not. So what what we should be doing is preparing ourselves for the next wave of whatever this happens to be and the small little cuts that will get us. I mean, it isn't okay to be thinking about um, something that's happening in San Bernardino or in Boston or, you know, wherever it happens to be. These, these things that happen and people forget um, and then we go on. That machine that's churning these recruiting um, activities isn't stopping. And so what government has said is, thank you for reminding us um, that this this is not dead because if you're only reading the headlines or the tweets, you're going to think that the whole thing is over. So that's the government response. From the actual people, like regular people outside of government, it's been – I've traveled all over the country for the last three months. I have been um, crisscrossing the country talking to people in um, – uh, in in a wide variety of ways, whether it's on college campuses or it's in um, you know Rotary clubs or whatever it is, I, I've been talking to regular Americans about the rise of hate, and the response I get for those who have heard me has been um, has been positive. It's been thank you for giving us a playbook, telling us what we can do as an individual. Um, and what I've heard, and I, I, I and I say this because I know the audience at Rain. Let me tell you that. The corporations that have heard me, and I don't want to mention names on your um, on your podcast, but I've gone into some of the largest companies in our country to talk about their role in this. Interestingly, they have said corporate purpose is something we are talking about daily. We understand how the environment has changed and that we need to do more. It is not good enough to do, quote, CSR, uh, unquote, that with the UN Sustainable Development Goals uh, putting pressure on companies and the consciousness 
of companies that have shifted and changed, CEOs are interested in what they can do. So I, I've gotten very positive responses, um, you know, and I, and I feel very lucky to have had that. I hope that your listeners will, um, will read the book and, and also be um, keen on, on the solutions that I offer and, and stand up and do what they can to make a difference on this really important issue. So I want to thank you. Obviously, a uh, conversation to be continued work that needs to be uh, ongoing. I'm going to sort of close on a couple of things, and you're absolutely right. There is a broader and continuing debate about the purpose of companies, the purpose of capitalism, and um, how we can do better and what what is required for all of us to do better. Uh, I will also, add my personal editorial comment, that unfortunately the a lot of the divisiveness and I'll call it the tribalism is being driven, you know, by the rhetoric of politicians. And so, you know, there's a broader issue about the culture of how we speak to each other and listen to each other uh, that has to be addressed. Uh, and I feel, you know, quite frankly, your book actually gives some important insights. But I will close with this, uh, and the reason... I was anxious to do this podcast with you, and Far has spoken, been generous enough to speak at our conferences and uh, prior webinars. This is an important issue. It is not going away. And, you know, part of what uh, I have found most helpful is if you can find the honest brokers in the room, the people who are intellectually honest, who are not partisan, who don't have a an agenda hidden or otherwise, and are just willing to actually give generously of their time, their efforts, their resources, their continued thinking. Those are the people you want to connect with. And I know uh, so much of what the great work you have done has been on an uncompensated basis, has been for the greater good. And it is, uh, I won't quite say it's a Sisyphean task, but there's an element of, you know, as you push the rock up the hill, it, it does roll down, and then you got to push it back up again. Uh, so, first of all, I want to thank you for your service, your continued service, most importantly for your continued thinking, speaking, uh, I'll call it uh, relentless uh, sort of enthusiasm and effort for what, what could be. Okay, so uh, it's been a pleasure not only speaking to you far, but... Uh, we look forward to being of uh, of assistance. Uh, you are an honest broker with great insights and with shared and acquired wisdom that is uh, very, very important for people to hear. And so Thank we so much. look forward to Thank continued you. conversations. And most importantly, you know, congratulations. The book is an effort to scale as far as efforts and, uh, and thinking. That's what a book is. And uh, it's a terrific job. So we, we will be pushing this podcast out, and we look forward to uh, continued conversation. Well, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed the conversation, David. Thank you. Okay. Thank you.
Thank you for joining today's podcast. If you like this content and want more, go to www.rainnetwork.com backslash join to become a RAIN member. RAIN members get exclusive access to webinars, podcasts, the daily risk book email digest, expert content, and more. So go to www.rainnetwork.com backslash join to become a RAIN member today.